We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Brooks, uh, who is a Professor of Law and Government and uh, Dean of Durham Law School at the University of Durham, is a member of the Fabian Society's Executive, a uh, Policy Advisor to the Labour Party, and also uh, Chair of the Sedgefield Branch of the Sedgefield Constituency Labour Party. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Will. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's great to have you on. Uh, So my first question is, obviously the Labour Party has recently seen a a quite uh, severe uh, defeat uh, in the uh, last year's general election. What do you think were the underlying factors uh, behind that defeat? Wow. Um, There are are quite a few. I mean, I've had, I mean, so there's, there's basically a couple sides to this. The, the two main kind of views are folks on, on one side of the equation say, you know, that it, it boiled down to um, the leader, that, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was um, the, the, the primary cause. Others on the, on the so-called other side um, claim the position on, on, on Brexit um, was, and, 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 and that's then reinterpreted to mean um, uh, kind of being for a, a, a second referendum. Um, I think it was a, a combination of, of probably both and, and, and some other things. Um, so without going uh, to any, any longer than you'd want me to on this, I think it's, you know, it's undeniable, you know, one doesn't have to kind of, you know, believe every poll to know that uh, every poll um, showed that um, Jimmy Corbyn was unpopular with, with, um, large um, uh, parts of the public. He was, when, when specifically on questions like, you know, who do you see as a prime minister? Mm. Uh, not, you know, do you think someone is, you know, seems all right or, or, or things like this. In America, they have things like, you know, who would you rather have coffee with? And, and that was apparently a deterrent, you know, and so more people thought they could have a cup of coffee with George W. Bush rather than Al Gore. And that was apparently one of the factors <laughs> that was uh, that was thrown at Al Gore as to why, you know, how he could have improved electability. Um, I, I think with, with Corbyn, he was, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, did find him likable, but there was an issue about leadership that um, was in the minds of others, and it was un- undeniably a factor on the doorstep. When I spoke to people, um, it, it came up probably more than, than anything else. It's true that the Brexit position wasn't um, very, um, wasn't, wasn't helpful either, but but there, I think it's always important to remember what the heck the, the, the position was. I mean, Labour had decided formally to not take a side um, on, on Brexit, that it was not for it. It was not against it. It was going, you know, the, the, the big idea was vote for a Labour government and uh, it will somehow um, negotiate some new deal in a matter of months, which I, I thought was probably um, uh, would be very difficult to achieve. But anyway... Um, it, it would be in a couple of months, there'd be a new deal and Labour would put it to the public whether or not they wanted the, the Labour deal or no deal, but without campaigning for its own deal um, and without campaigning to, to remain. And so, I mean, which is very different from, say, the second referendum view or what was called the second referendum view, right, of, of Liberal Democrats mm. and a lot of anti-Brexit campaigners where second referendum meant you have a referendum on Brexit where there's someone arguing for remain. And I remember being in the room at the Labour Party annual conference when, um, presumably with the, with the leader's uh, blessing, it was their, their motion um, to, to, you know, to accept a second referendum, but without taking a side. And I think that, 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 that criticism of the party, of, of, and I could see why that happened. And, I, and, and, and there, was, there, was, there was arguments for it and, and that, were, that were all right, and there were some arguments against it um, that I was probably more persuaded by. Um, but, you know, that was the view. And, and the criticism that, you know, here's the biggest political question in modern history, and Labour's plopped, right, plopped itself right on the fence and can't decide and can't take a view, I think was, um, was incredibly damaging. Um, but I also think that um, the, 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 the policies were an issue. The, the, the policies were not an issue in terms of necessarily what they were per se, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely, as a, a university professor, I'm all for um, ending fees to, to universities. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that policy remains. So don't get me wrong, I'm not about to start on picking <laughs> policies. But there's quite a few things um, in, the, in the manifesto. It was difficult to kind of draw attention to um, a, a, any, you know, what the kind of core message was of the party. And that was complicated by the way in which the party tried to personalize uh, the manifesto. So there was the manifesto for everybody that you can you know, find and w- w- was published. There was then, um, I thought an interesting idea, um, manifestos for regions, right? Mm-hmm. So you had the kind of the national manifesto to kind of memorize and know what that's supposed to do. And then there was something that was different for the Northeast where I am. There's something different for the Northwest and Midlands and other things. And it's like, okay, that's complicating it. And then you could go into the website and you can kind of come up with, you can kind of, you know, tick on things of importance to you and get like your own individualized manifesto. And I think that, you know, well, we want to make concrete, we want to make these things kind of um, real uh, for, for voters, you know, that had, that was a very difficult thing. You know, it was, it was quite literally showing someone, every, each person something different about what labor had to offer. Whereas, you know, what was Boris going to do? Um, you know, the, the, you know, Johnson and his team were just going to, you know, get Brexit done. Um, they didn't tell you what that meant. They didn't tell you what that was. They certainly haven't done it. Um, you know, Brexit, as, in, as we're still in a transition period with no agreement in sight um, on a new trade deal. But they you had a kind of a, a, sen- a greater sense of clarity as to what they wanted to do by keeping it simple, stupid, as the old <laughs> campaign um, uh, crude slogan uh, goes. And, and that was effective. People effectively knew what they stood for. And I think that that message on Brexit that the other side had, I think what was a, what really kind of went home with it wasn't that they somehow were for leave and that's what everybody just wanted, because that was never the case that everyone was just for, for, for leaving. Uh, the European Union. That wasn't really it. So I do think there was a very solid majority for, you know, not just getting Brexit done, but getting talk about Brexit done. Mm. I think people were sick. If you're not kind of political anoraks like you and I, you get, you know, get very interested and, and involved and knowledgeable about the different things going on. Most people just were just sick to death, you know, you know, of, of what the latest, you know, chat was in a meeting and who had the best notes and and what was said or what wasn't said, just said, okay, we want this thing over with so we can kind of plan our businesses, plan our lives, you know, plan our futures and expect the politicians to kind of get on with it one way uh, or the other. And so I think that sense of clarity that, that we would not be talking about Brexit all the time, um, uh, consolidating the leave vote uh, in, in so doing that, having that kind of clear message were things that, that clearly helped the other side versus labor that had an unpopular leader was seen to be sitting on the fence on the biggest political issue of that time mm. and um, had a, 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 a manifesto that, that seemed to say different things to different people depending on who you were and where you were, where you lived. Um, now, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you have uh, worked as uh, an advising, uh, advisory role uh, with both Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. And I wonder... What do you think are the differences in the way that the two of them interact with ideas, or are they quite similar in the way that they engage with ideas? Well, I had my first break uh, with Ed Miliband. I met him um, at my uh, quite literally on my 40th birthday at a Labour North event, um, and I got in very trouble, a lot of trouble with my family when I was trying to explain how I was not going to go out celebrating on my 40th. Uh, with with friends and 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 be out uh, you know in a pub or somewhere, but instead wanted to attend a political event, um, uh, all for the purposes of getting to meet uh, Miliband. Um, I got to know his brother David when he was an MP up here in the Northeast in South Shields. Um, I wanted to meet Ed uh, to convince him that he needed an immigrant to advise him on immigration, and quite literally everyone I I know and worked with thought I was um, completely nuts. Um, but I did it as everyone's trying to get their selfies and also the stuff like that, you know, with, with him, I just kind of went straight in and, 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 you know, said, you know, said who I was and, and the, and the work that I wanted to do. I wanted to, um, advise his team. I'd certainly never done anything like it before, but, um, 
I was up for it. I knew something about immigration law and policy, um, having done it firsthand, and, uh, and I was up for it. And he was, um, and he was great. And within about a week, I got a letter inviting me uh, to become an advisor to his to his team. And that's something that um, I think I got that 2013 or so, and I've been doing that um, ever since. What was interesting, you mentioned the, the, the different, you know, potential differences between Corbyn and Starmer. They're both um, so different from 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 Miliband. Um, so with with Miliband, I felt um, I, I I was meeting regularly um, uh, with uh, his chief advisor on on home policy affairs, a guy called Harvey Redgrave, um, and doing primarily, if not exclusively, work for the manifesto. So, um, for example, I was researching the, um, the, 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 then it made into the manifesto um, about um, making frontline uh, public workers um, be uh, fluent in English, mm. um, stuff like that. So I was kind of doing kind of small reports on that and, you know, basically putting a professor who can do some research um, to good use uh, in confidence. Um, so, so my, my you know, kind of particular things I was doing at the time would, would be in in strict confidence, um, but um, but it was great. I, I I learned a lot as I was doing it, and it was wonderful. However, I'll never forget uh, Will how I was in Harvey because I was really pushing for immigration to be to get a bit more profile from from Miliband's labor, thinking that we were kind of giving up the ground. We were taking it taking criticism from all sides that I thought was unfair, and you know people were calling more and more for a points based immigration system. Well, if that's really such a great idea, and 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 that's that's the only thing the right had to go for. They thought that was their kind of trump card. Well, actually, there's been a points-based system in the UK <laughs> since 2008. Uh, it was put into force by a Labour government, and I should know because I, you know, I, I I'm a non-EU person, and we go through that points-based system. Um, so um, so there already was one, and so people, you know from Nigel Farage to Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and others arguing to launch one, I thought, you know, we, we've clearly, they really don't know what they're doing. And if that's such a great idea, we're already doing it. Um, anyway, I got somewhere in um, with the party because he, he called me down for a meeting and I very excitedly hopped on the train to, to, to meet him um, in, in, a, in a cafe not far from, um, from Westminster. And he said, uh, we, we, we're going to put in the, manif- in, in the um, we're going to have it as a pledge. He said, what's that? You know, we're going to have controls on immigration. And I said, great, which ones? <laughs> you know, right? Because I, I, I've been spending a lot of time drawing up all these different policies um, that, that could be explored. Um, uh, and so, no, no, just controls on immigration. I said, that sounds awful. <laughs> um but um, and you know the rest is history, isn't it? You know mugs and yeah. all. Um, but um, so with him, I felt like I had done a lot of work for that team. But I was while I was given lots of reassurances that lots happened behind the scenes with my work that I'd done. I, I didn't feel anything kind of really materially um, uh, happening with it. I was a bit frustrated at that time, but you know was new to the game and just glad to have a foot have somewhat inside the door. With Jeremy uh, Corbyn and team, um, even though um, I'm, you know, born in, in New Haven, the same city that uh, George W. Bush was born in, I uh, live in Sedgefield constituency, of course, represented by many as Tony Blair. So, two, I have a connection of sorts to to two people <laughs> that uh, Corbyn and company certainly don't have the most positive views of. Um, I and in lots of talk by people who who don't know him very well about, you know, the factions and how factional things are and so on. I, it was not my personal experience. Um, I, I mean, I remember the first time I made the same pitch to Jeremy about, you know, I'm an immigrant, I'd like to help with immigration. And he hugged me um, and said, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, and he was, and he was great. Um, and, um, you know, and, um, you know, judged me on my merits. Um, I was very quickly, um, connecting with uh, Harvey Redgrave, Redgrave's replacement, which is a chap called Lachlan Stewart, and um, who's fabulous and remains a dear friend. And it was interesting, you know, so while I had, you know, no previous connection whatsoever um, to anyone uh, on the so-called um, inner circle, with the possible exception of Laura Pitcock, who was a friend of mine before she became an MP, 
um, I had no inside anything to, to, to anybody and no connection whatsoever. In fact, you know, a lot of connections I had had, I built with Ed Miliband, of course, had gone um, uh, with um, when Jim McCord became leader. Um, I was a bit, bit nervous. But actually, you know, coming forward, you know, at that time, you might remember, you know, a lot of MPs weren't kind of working with the leader's office. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people had kind of turned away. Um, and so you had this kind of rush of, of a lot of new really exciting um, activists joining the party, which was absolutely fabulous. But you did have some folks who, um, who had some experience and have been around a bit who, for whatever reason, um, decided to become less active or, or to leave the party, unfortunately. Um, and, and I found it just, um, uh, just a kind of a real open door for me. Um, you know, there were lots of folks um, surrounding um, uh, Corbyn who had very strong views on, say, you know, what, how we should treat asylum seekers and refugees mm. in a in a progressive way, um, uh, but there was not so much. There, there wasn't a long queue at the door of folks who knew anything um, substantive about the details and how they might be reformed on on other areas of of immigration in, in particular. Um, and so now the only two that were an exception to that were were Diane Abbott, who used to work in the Home Office. And Shami Chakrabarty, uh, who, who um, of course became, um, I think, Shadow Attorney General mm-hmm. and and um, had Home Office um, experience too. So they both kind of were clued up, um, were keen to have somebody who knew something about things. Um, and Diane just was just always just kind of really um, warm towards me. I grew a very fast friendship with um, when, when Corbyn became leader with uh, the newly elected. Um, and newly appointed Shadow Immigration Minister, one Keir Starmer. <laughs> um, uh, I met him uh, within a week or two of his becoming um, a member of parliament. We hit it off immediately as um, I uh, also have a, I have a, a long history of, of doing work in, in criminal law and, and sentencing and have written about sentencing and have taken part in, 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 in an initiative that he had started with the CPS uh, with the BPP. And he was really quite pleased to see someone who understood that background that he had in criminal law, someone that came from a law school. He was a law school graduate of Leeds. He, he studied in, in Yorkshire. Um, and he, um, he, was, he was exceptionally smart. So, so liked having a, a law professor around, felt we could um, uh, uh, communicate um, uh, pretty openly and pretty freely. Um, and, and then was just very interested to know more about immigration because that was not an area of law that is covered in, in, in um, most uh, law degrees. It's not a qualifying mm. subject. And so he was just keen to have someone else around. So, and he also tweeted some very nice things about my book. <laughs> so, uh, so Sakir was kind of great. So, so Jeremy Corbyn's team were wonderful to me. He was replaced by Absol Khan, who became a very close friend and was also terrific. And I think to, to summarize it, I think that both Corbyn and Starmer's teams have been very positively uh, open to new ideas, um, to to new people um, contributing. Um, there's been opportunities um, to do so that were not there, uh, in my view, or at least not open to me um, uh, before. Whereas both Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer have opened up to this kid born from somewhere else, uh, strange accent, uh, lives up in the Northeast and has no familiar connections to anything here. But they both have been been really great. If anything, I think um, Starmer seems keen to um, uh, accelerate that a, a bit and has been kind of even more um, uh, open to um, getting advice and support from uh, the academic community and, and others as well. But, 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 you know, similarly, you know, just really kind of to a degree building on a lot of things that happened, in my view, with with Corbyn, at least on the on the home affairs front that I work on. Hmm. Um, now, of course, one of the things that has uh, greatly uh, involved immigration has been Brexit and the ways that hmm. that will uh, change our relationship with the rest of the world. If Labour is able to uh, win the next general election, which will, of course, will be after Brexit, hmm. how do you think that that will impact uh, Labour's immigration policy? Well, I, I still remain a bit doubtful, not hopeful. I remain doubtful 
that the government is going to get all its ducks in a row um, by uh, by the end of the year. Yes, they have things in law. Yes, it'll be very difficult um, for um, things to go um, off track. Uh, but yes, also, uh, a, a no deal, which is presumably where we're headed to right now, on the back of what, what might be an oncoming second wave um, of a coronavirus, um, you know, talk about a, a bad mix of stuff to hit the country economically. Um, I'm, you know, we, we haven't left the transition period yet. Um, mm. And, 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 you know, and, and I have some people say, well, you know, Tom, you know, Boris Johnson and others, you know, they, they just keep saying, and they mean it, that they, they want to leave and they're going to do things and Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. And I say, well, look, if, 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 you know, if the resolve to get Brexit done was enough to complete that project, Theresa May would have done it two years ago. Um, you know, she, she had every incentive um, to, to, you know, so-called get Brexit done. Um, and there were lots of reasons, and, and not just uh, party political, why that was um, a challenge. I mean, one thing that's happened the last few weeks was a consultation as to, uh, on, on a topic that I, I raised with Keir um, when he was Shadow Brexit Secretary, the issue of um, if we Brexit, you know, what's the current position on law? The current position on, on the law is that what has been incorporated already from the EU in British law will effectively be frozen in time and that um, it will effectively be, you know, unpicked or reformed um, over time. So, for example, um, you know, it's not going to be the case that um, uh, all our consumer protection will necessarily end or maternity rights will necessarily end on the 1st of January. Um, they will, it will stay because this has been kind of effectively reincorporated in, in, in UK law. Um, by an act of parliament. My, my point to Keir was, well, hang on a second. You know, what, what do they mean by EU law? If they mean, <laughs> if they mean um, uh, you know, you know, legislation from the EU parliament and other things, okay, that's fine. But also there's the holdings of the European court um, and uh, of justice. And that this is standing too. And, and I haven't seen any list of which doctrines from which cases um, <laughs> will be frozen in time as well. And until that happens, we seem to be missing, um, uh, if not the law, then uh, how it should be applied, um, uh, you know, by, you know, which we need uh, for, for, for um, uh, by Brexit day. And, and you know, care, care seemed to agree with that. Well, the government is only a week or two ago uh, put out a consultation, which is ongoing, by the way. So your listeners are very welcome to uh, look this up, <laughs> gov.uk, and, and fill out uh, the, 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 uh, the, the consultation um, displaying their full uh, uh, legal knowledge. But um, you know, the government's trying to find out now um, <laughs> which, which European court of justice decisions stick or should stick, and what does that mean, and where do they find them um, now? You know, uh, it's August, Prime Minister, um, so it's really quite remarkable. They've quite literally <laughs> left that to the end. You would think they'd have a list somewhere, but no. Uh, the House of Commons Library, you know, does have a list of uh, different bits of EU law that um, are, are, are frozen in time effectively, but it's not uh, in, in the uh, very helpful library briefings, has not given a list of, of, the, of um, the court judgments. So it's... So I'm so I'm not again I'm not uh, you know um, optimistic about Brexit. I've always thought Brexit was going to be delayed and delayed and delayed, not because I didn't want Brexit, but because I thought Brexit was just so damn hard to do. It was a lot more difficult um, to to make a reality than I think its proponents um, uh, thought. You know, not because anyone doesn't have isn't smart enough or has the wrong political values or I don't think any of that. I think lots of smart people were for Brexit and um, have fine values, but um, but the issue is just it's a very complicated project um, that can't be done can't be done quickly. And I think that's the primary reason things are being delayed. So I'm, Brexit hasn't you know the transition period continues and and I'll believe it's ended when uh, the clock strikes eleven o'clock at night on the thirty first of, of December. That's when I'll. That's when you've got me that Brexit has happened. That's when I'll believe it, but not yet um, until then. Again, because of just um, just pragmatism, not um, not optimism. Mm. But if there was Brexit, so so I, I gave you a long caveat. But if so, if Brexit um, you know happens the way in which Prime Minister says it will, 
um, and, and we're well and truly uh, out. What do these things mean um, for uh, immigration? Well, I think one of the things that it will, will mean is that assuming the government with its majority of 80 will um, effectively get its way on a new immigration system. And I, I have no reason to doubt that it will um, get its way. Now, it's not going to be quite, as they were told by the Migration Advisory Committee, a group of five labor economists who um, advise um, independently the government, none of them, none are a member of any party. They advise on basically the, uh, the, the shortage occupation list and, and some other matters of, of immigration policy. Uh, they were asked um, uh, by the government to do an analysis of um, what a points, how a points-based system might look like, how that, how it might be launched, and how it might apply to to all areas. Mm-hmm. And migration advisory committee, uh, it was hilarious. The then um, director Alan Manning, uh, Professor Manning at LSE, had to remind the government that, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Prime Minister, but uh, well, how do I put this? There's already a points-based system in place. <laughs> Don't you donuts know this? Um, and that, broadly speaking, you know, was it perfect? Not at all. Could it be reformed? Totally. Um, but are we talking about reforming, uh, uh, rejigging what exists? Are we talking about something wholesale? We're talking about rejigging the system. So they were absolutely against um, kind of creating some kind of point table for how you can get a family member here Mm. or, you know, are you a student or not or, or other types of of things. So they had some kind of real and said things like, you know, no country in the world that has a points based system um, does that as families, you know, you have to make sure that your, your wife or husband or somebody else meets some points threshold in order to kind of bring your child here. Mm. Um, That's not, um, that's not how, um, how that, that works in the United States or, uh, any any country, so they so there's this kind of interesting kind of question around that. Um, of course, looking to Australia, particularly for a points system, and, and though, though not looking to to Canada, America, of course, is a different um, non-points um, thing that they do. Mm. But I think we're looking at a reality of a points-based system that you know one that that labor started in a project. I think that we could we could reform um, and, and and fix, um, and I think um, could be done. Um, in, in a number in a number of ways. Um, I mean, what would these things kind of look like? Um, well, this is something that the, I think uh, the party um, will be you know is will be reviewing shortly. Um, um, you know, ahead of drawing up its own uh, plans for a new manifesto hmm. as to kind of what this thing um, uh, might might look like. But a, but a few kind of general thoughts. I mean, one is. Um, you know, the government talks about, um, if I can just give you a few details, I don't want to um, uh, say more about <laughs> points for things than you care to hear. Uh, but the government says stuff like, everyone will be required to know English. That's not true, right? It's mm. absolutely not true. If you go into the further details, um, the further guidance, excuse me, um, for their, um, which was published last month, uh, it makes clear that there are categories of migration. Um, I believe they include um, what used to be called Tier One Investor, but the Global Talent Investor Scheme. So if you've got enough money, uh, don't worry, mate. Uh, we won't be asking you for an English test. Um, there's also exemptions. Um, there's a number of exemptions uh, depending on what country you come from. There are some other visas um, uh, streams in which you will not be. Um, you are not required to uh, prove uh, knowledge of, of English above any uh, particular threshold, so certainly not fluency um, as well. Um, and they also make kind of curious exam- uh, exemptions, such as if you come from a country that does not speak English and study a degree somewhere in English, even in a country whose citizens are not on the list as exempted, mm. you can be exempt. <laughs> So, for example, Kazakhstan is not on the list. I'm picking a country out of, out of random. Um, Kazakhstan is not on the list. The English is not a primary language there, but um, the, the main university does teach in English. So if you have an English degree from Kazakhstan, of whatever, whatever you think of what degrees are elsewhere, that counts every bit as much as having passed <laughs> a test 
for you know having satisfactory fluency um, in a speaking listening test here in the UK. And that sounds that sounds to me nuts. Um, and also, of course, being an American, I know full well that there are millions of my compatriots who are wonderful people and are equally American citizens who do not know much English at all. And the fact that all Americans are given an exemption um, is no guarantee that everyone knows any. I mean, it's not just a matter of kind of knowing enough English, it knows any um, uh, English. So one thing I would want a labor government to do is, um, is, is to want to actually enforce the standard because I, I think the government is, is, is um, certainly willfully misleading the public, um, but the Home Secretary and Prime Minister surely must know that not everyone is actually required to um, know English. That'd be one thing. The other is I don't think it should only be English either. So I think, you know, um, integrating to some parts of the UK and parts of Wales and Scotland, Welsh and Scots Gaelic might be um, better for that. Mm. Um, these are languages that were um, more commonly made available um, for people to do the citizenship test on, um, although very rarely that was taken up. Um, and, you know, I think that that should be, that should be brought back, that if, if someone who comes from another country moves to, say, Wales and wants to learn Welsh, um, you, know, I've, you know, when I've traveled to Aberystwyth, say, to the university and other times, you know, Welsh is the common thing I hear in the street. It's a common thing mm -hmm. that people talk about. Yes, they know English too, but to integrate, it's not clear to me um, that it need only be English um, and that it can't be, say, other, um, you know, British languages if, for mm -hmm. want of another categorization. So those would be a couple um, things that I would be keen um, uh, to do. I would also be keen to look uh, very closely at some of the, the family uh, rules. So I'll just point out one. Again, I don't want to tell you more about the, the changes than you will care to, to hear. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I don't want to get too into the detail that might not, uh, might, uh, you know, might not be to every listener's uh, interest. But, um, but, but take one example on families. So if you have a spouse and you're, you're British and your spouse is not, and you want to bring your spouse here, you need to earn a certain level of money here in the UK. You cannot just kind of pack up your bags and arrive here without a job and have your um, spouse um, uh, get an automatic uh, spousal visa to stay. That's not how it works. Mm. You need to make money and you need to make it here. One of the, the problems, what, one of the issues with that, um, justifications, is that if someone's earning above, say, 18,600 pounds, the thought is that um, that is somehow a guarantee that the spouse will um, not be eligible or not require any income-based welfare payments. It will not be based, basically asking for a handout, to use language of the right. Mm. Um, and... So, so if that's the case, one problem with that is um, non-EU citizens and potentially soon uh, uh, any non-UK citizen will not have any direct access to benefits anyway. <laughs> so, so to kind of say, like, we're doing this requirement to make sure you don't get um, benefits from the state. Well, I, w I had it in my passport that I, uh, until I became a British citizen, that I had no recourse to public funds anyway. So... Um, you know, that was not kind of a problem in the first place. So it was a curious thing that, you know, curious thing to have someone else satisfy for me that I can't actually exercise. Mm. The other problem here is um, what should it matter, provided that one person in the family earns that amount of money, what does it matter if it's the British citizen and not the other? Um, put it this way, if Melania Trump for whatever reason, wanted to leave her husband, hypothetically speaking, and uh, left the president um, for someone who uh, was in the UK, she would need to find a British spouse that earned 18,600 pounds or more to sponsor her for her to come, even though she will, if there's you know any truth to anything Trump says about how much money he's worth, or we're, we may find out in a New York courtroom uh, shortly uh, whether or not it's actually true, um, she's arguably worth a, a few cool million. Um, so even though she would not need any recourse to anyone's funds and is by all accounts uh, will be very wealthy, certainly as a, a you know in her current um, situation and 
uh, hypothetically would appear to be if she were to um, separate or divorce the president, as some um, uh, speculate she might want to, um, then you know, she would be barred from coming here. Even though it just, it's kind of nonsensical um, that that would be the case, given, again, the justification about ensuring that that person doesn't have recourse to, to kind of welfare payments. Well, you know, why she wouldn't be in that position to in that sense of being wealthy. So I would like to see uh, something kind of change on that income to take kind of a whole family view uh, of income earned um, by the family and not have it all fall only to um, the British party to, um, um, to do so, but to have a kind of more collective view. I think uh, also, frankly, um, a more um, uh, fair view. And I also finally, uh, I think there ought to be a, a proper um, uh, kind of uh, look and review about how the um, the, the points uh, the points work um, in the system, because of course two things motivate that. One is that um, the, the the point system is of course uh, is still unknown, right? So we're months away from uh, it allegedly being law of the land, but we yeah. still don't know what most of the points categories are going to look like. Mm. So the other thing that you heard about um, in the press from the government was stuff about having a degree was going to get you points. And you need, you know, the kind of degree uh, uh, possessing English speaking people only. And none of these low skilled folks will be allowed in. Well, of course they have a, that's not going to be true either. But anyway, that's the, um, that's, that's the, the public um, uh, show that they give. But that's not true. So on the current table, it talks about having a PhD in one subject gets you a certain amount of points. Having a PhD in a science subject gets you even more points. But then when you actually read the further uh, details, it tells you something different. It tells you that there's also going to be points, though arguably fewer, for a variety of different degrees, but they haven't figured out what those qualifications <laughs> will earn you. They're also going to give you points based upon your experience. Don't ask me how. They're going to give you points based on non-degree possessing experience you have, um, uh, how that will work and be evidenced by field, um, and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, that is um, a, a mess. A lot of the points we're still waiting to see how it will work. The income threshold itself, uh, they, they say that there is a minimum threshold, um, but actually it's not fixed. It's, it's, there's a lot of caveats they look at. Um, that's compared to what 80% of a certain median in your field might earn in an entry level. The technicalities are breathtaking. Making a system that's already complex, already badly run, the Home Office already loses 60% of all appeals made against it because it gets it wrong. It's making a system it can barely handle for the single category of non-EU citizens, mostly. It's making it far more complex, far more clunky and, and worse. And so I would try to streamline it. I would try to simplify it. Um, and I would try to um, make it more more fair. And that would be what I would hope uh, Labour would do. I would say a lot more, um, but um, I will stop there. <laughs> uh, now, one of the um, uh, most controversial cases that is going up uh, before the Supreme Court at the moment is that of Shamima Begum uh, regarding mm. uh, yes. her, the stripping of her uh, British citizenship. Now, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Ah, that good one. So um, I got a shorter answer, Will. Um, so you'll be really <laughs> delighted to hear. Um, so on this, there was, I'm, I'm certain, pretty certain that the government is going to lose this case. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably as certain they're going to lose it in the Supreme Court as I was the Supreme Court was going to find a strong majority, if not unanimity, on the Perrogation case. Um, so, so pretty strong. Um, this is partly because there is a precedent. Um, so when, um, I'm trying to recall, when Theresa May um, was some secretary, um, I believe, there was the case about stripping um, someone uh, of his nationality while he was abroad, someone who was, who was British. Mm. And I forget which country this person was claimed to belong to in addition to Britain, but the argument went like this, that the, I mean, there have been previous cases where the, the Home Office had stripped someone of citizenship and claimed that um, 
that they weren't really making the person um, stateless because of, um, well, we we're trying to get away with it and, and, and got into trouble because they were making the person stateless. And so then there was a test case effectively where um, Theresa May's team argued that someone being stripped of, of his British citizenship was not being made stateless because the Home Office had determined that <laughs> if the person knocked on the door of uh, whatever other country, they ought to be entitled to an automatic um, passport from them, they had automatic right of citizenship. Mm. And so all they needed to do was ask. And so because the person could just kind of request it and get the thing, they were not necessarily making him stateless. He was only effectively stateless by choice and not kind of asking to have that passport. And so the Home Office was somehow not doing anything naughty. Um, they weren't in breach of the law. And it went to the Supreme Court, and the court found that the Home Office just can't do that. Um, you know, that, um, <laughs> shocker, that it's not for the British government to determine who is and is not a national of another country. You know, it's kind of like um, allowing the Canadians to tell us who's really a British citizen. So we have to take that terrorist back or terrorist suspect back because the Canadian court thinks that um, or, or the Canadian government thinks that. That's the analog here, um, you know, where the British government just kind of thinks somebody um, belongs to another country, and so therefore it's their problem because Britain has disowned somebody um, when the other country does. And then the Supreme Court said, effectively, if someone's not already on the books, if, already, if someone's not already down uh, listed as a, as a citizen of that state, then it is not for the British government to say whether or not they are uh, on, that, on that list. That is the sovereign decision of that other country. And, mm. you know, and, and, and I think the point was made uh, likewise, you know, similarly, you know, we would want the same in return from anyone else. We don't want Bangladesh or America or Papua New Guinea telling us who, uh, who's British and who's not. That's for Britain to determine mm. who's a British citizen or not. And, and, but, but it goes likewise. And it's a kind of a curious um, 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 uh, blindness uh, or uh, hypocrisy uh, um, that, you know, of, of what one is demanding of others, that one is an exception to the rule um, somehow this. So I think it's, there's already the test case. I see nothing um, so far from the proceedings to make me think that the Supreme Court is going to uh, go another way. I mean, at the end of the day, the facts of the case are plain that um, however awful um, Shamia Begum's um, actions are, and I don't doubt for a second uh, that they are, and I don't doubt there's lots of reasons um, on lots of policy grounds and other grounds to, to not want her back. Um, she can't be stripped of her citizenship, given that she does not have citizenship to another country. And that's the end of it. Mm. And Bangladesh has already been, has already commented that, um, because the government, I believe, says that she was entitled to Bangladeshi um, citizenship if she asked for it, or, or it was some, some automatic natural entitlement. And they said that they don't recognize her uh, as a citizen. She's not on the list, and they're not about to make her um, a citizen um, either. So even that, <laughs> Kind of evidence that, that the, the place that the home office says is her country says that uh, no mate we are that country and we're telling you she's not um it, it seems that they're 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 in a they're, they're going to lose this case as they have lost um ones before so i think the specifics are that she, you know she's wanted to contest her right to to appeal i think it will be um allowed um and i think that um and i wouldn't be surprised there's some kind of strong direction given um, about her entitlement to that. And I, I did a piece that, that I mean, um, with um, a, a law uh, program on Radio 4 a few months back with Lord Carlisle, the little Democrat peer and, and, uh, and a you know, highly respected uh, barrister, formerly um, was the um, um, inspector overseeing kind of the uh, independent um, care on terrorism. Um, and, and Carlisle said that was spot on, that, that that's absolutely the law and as he saw it. And, and, um, and, and there you are. So, so having kind of his um, saying that and every other lawyer I've spoken to says the same, um, I think that the government will lose the case. So it raises the question of the, why the heck did they do it if they were going to lose? Um, answer, um, you know, frankly, you know, the usual dog whistle politics of, um, you know, looking tough on uh, immigrants to kind of win over 
you know, uh, popular, you know, points and win elections, you know, that, that it, it did, it did the government more good to say in public that they were going to do something, even if the government knew that they, that it was illegal, um, because, you know, there was no real risk that, um, if they, well, got their way that, um, they kept the person out and achieved a policy objective. Um, and if the person came back and was let in, then that might be another, you know, stick they can use to beat the judiciary for, um, for when the government refuses to abide by the rule of law. Um, so um, they probably saw it as a win-win situation, not having much regard um, overall for, um, for the rule of law. Um, now, of course, you are a, a joint British and American citizen, and uh, mm. this year uh, we'll be having a, a presidential election. You most certainly are. We most certainly are. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, if Joe Biden uh, wins that election, how do you think the dynamic between him and Boris Johnson will work? Do you think that the special relationship will change? What do you think will happen? Well, the first thing to say about a President Biden is just, well, you know, I'll take it. Um, it's, 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 you know, what did Churchill say of democracy? It's the, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the worst except for all the rest. Um, uh, given all the other viable candidates um, uh, running right now, um, he seems to be the, the best of a, of a worse law, um, uh, certainly better than, than Trump, so I'll take him. So I won't be jumping up and down when he wins, but I will breathe a heavy sigh of relief uh, should he win, that, um, that, that uh, someone could go to Donald's and say, you're fired. <laughs> of course, um, Trump does the apprentice uh, version in the United States, or at least he used to. Um, and so it'd be good to have those words said to him. Um, the... One of the strange things about the strange, the special relationship, uh, I should call it the strange relationship, um, is that I never heard the phrase. I mean, I, I did an undergraduate degree in political science. I did my master's in political science. I took um, European political systems, studied parliamentary democracy, um, though main focus was, was political theory um, and comparative government. But, but having minored in comparative government, I had never heard this, the phrase special relationship until I came to the UK. And it's always struck me as a one-sided uh, viewpoint um, where the, um, the, the, um, uh, some British establishment, especially on the right, um, think that there's somehow something kind of special, often harping back to the Reagan-Thatcher years, mm. um, but also, of course, to the Second World War. Um, uh, about something kind of very kind of dear and lovely and wonderful um, about their, their American cousins and that there's some kind of closer bond between them and, um, and anybody else. I can tell you that I, I don't for a second think that that's true. Um, or that view is, is held by about any U.S. president that immediately comes to mind in, in modern times. Yes, Bill Clinton will have had a fondness for the UK, given um, work in Northern Ireland, given his wife, um, Hillary Clinton, has a, has a law school in Swansea named after her. So apparently she's, the, the Rodhams have a distant Welsh relations, and so there's some connection there. And she comes back. I think she's the chancellor of, of, the, of the university. Anyway, um, so yeah, there's fondness by all the presidents for, for the UK, no doubt. But do they give it the special, an especially high regard above other countries. Um, I, I'm afraid I don't see it reciprocated whatsoever. I mean, the, the American president, I think you can often tell priorities by who they pick up the phone and ring first. And the first phone call is just about never to my recollection, um, 10 Downing Street. Um, Prime Minister here doesn't get the first call. First usually goes to Canada. Um, you know, Canada shares um, a long land border, mostly land border, uh, with the United States, um, a massive trade partner, um, you know, America's uh, NAFTA agreement, you know, a big thing for um, Canada, U.S., mm. and with, with Mexico. Um, Canada is, is more, of the, um, more of the special relationship uh, type than, um, than, than Britain is by, I think, a very uh, large margin. Um, George W. Bush rang Vincente Fox, uh, then um, the president of, of uh, the Republic of Mexico. 
um, in Spanish. Uh, I think uh, Bush, as former governor of Texas, showing off a bit of his Espanol, um, <laughs> and, uh, and that there's something kind of different about, about him, that he was not going to prioritize the, the northern border, but he was going to um, be more friendly and open to the southern border and, and how, how radically left-wing and progressive <laughs> George W. Bush now looks, um, uh, in fact, um, compared to the, the current occupant. Obama, before he, you know, we forget him, he, he rang Merkel um, uh, um, uh, when, when, he, when he became, for his first call, in, in one of his, I forget if it's the first or the, the second uh, election. So um, the, the 10 Downing Street is not often the first port of call. Um, I, I think far more Americans probably identify as having Irish heritage than, than British of some kind. Um, so uh, even even Barack Obama said, you know, my last name's Obama. Uh, you know, even he claimed to have some kind of Irish thing on, on uh, St. Patrick's Day um, uh, as as the national holiday uh, of sorts, um, with national parades and so on. So I I've never quite seen the 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 special relationship with with Britain. Yes, a warm connection, but not anything special. So I don't think Biden um, is going to to kind of go out of his way to um, try to kind of do anything particular with, um, with, with Boris Johnson, given that Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are widely portrayed, not just in the media here, but also in the United States as cut from a similar cloth mm. of, um, you know, whether it be the hair, um, the figure, or the personal relationship issues, uh, that the two of them are seen as, as, as cut from a similar um, type of, of cloth. And so I don't think it'll be particularly warm. Um, and I think that um, Biden um, will be more likely to, well, will be attracted, I predict, with um, the EU, like Obama was before him. Why? Because the EU is the bigger trading block. Um, it's the bigger market. And he'll be keen to uh, open up uh, markets for um, the United uh, States more. And I think there'll be a huge focus on China. I think China, not necessarily a special relationship, of course, but I think that that's going to be the, one of the main um, foreign policy um, uh, areas of, of interest, and then Russia as well, but um, uh, particularly for negative reasons, but 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 for for China for for a myriad of reasons, and so so Britain trying to kind of find its own way in the world and its new feet and doing new things will not be off the radar, um, but. Um, but will not be of interest. And if I can, if I can make one other point, um, a lot of folks are saying, especially in the conservative um, conservative party, about you know the need to kind of move quick on a deal with Trump and how Trump is this wonderful opportunity to kind of um, race ahead with a positive deal that will show the benefits mm. of a of a post Brexit trade deal world that we enter. I truly wonder what what world these people live in. Um, and the reason I say that is not to undersell or um, be um, what's the, uh, you know, uh, to think that Britain's best days are behind it or something stupid like that. I don't think that at all. I think our best days are truly ahead of us. But I think they're foolish in terms of so badly misleading, uh, misreading the, the president of the United States. You know, Donald Trump might be wrong. He's wrong about a lot of things, by the way. He might be wrong, but he thinks he's the smartest guy on the planet. I mean, it's, under, it's pretty undeniable. You know, he's got lots of statements to that effect. He does seem to genuinely think he is smarter than you and I, though he might be wrong about that. <laughs> he also might be wrong, but he genuinely believes, and he campaigns, and one of his biggest kind of things, why you should vote for me, wasn't just about building walls and stuff. He was the world's greatest deal maker. Nobody in his view was better at getting what he wants than Donald Trump. He knows all about making a buck and, you know, and taking advantage of the other guy. Um, and he wrote a book, well, co-wrote, uh, <laughs> ghost author, presumably, um, uh, 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 called The Art of the Deal, uh, about, you know, uh, about uh, his, his science uh, for, for, for doing this kind of stuff. Someone who thinks that, again, he might be wrong. You know, maybe he can be outfooled. Maybe we could trick him into signing a treaty he thinks is better for America, but actually um, improves um, our side over his. And I take the point that trade deals are not necessarily 
uh, zero-sum games and often are not zero-sum games. However, there is simply no possibility in any alternative universe that Donald Trump is going to agree a trade deal with anybody that he does not think in his heart will improve the relative position of the United States relative to another country. He's particularly keen, he says this when he's running for election, he's saying it now, he wants more and more of America's money staying put in America. He wants other countries to, to be, you know, to kind of have a situation where countries are paying America for mm -hmm. the, 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 the gratitude, the honor of doing trade with the United States. This is not a guy who's looking, hey, Boris, let me help you out, man. You know, let me be your buddy. <laughs> um, Donald doesn't have friends, right? <laughs> uh, he's not a friendly guy from, from what reports we can see. And the thought that personal loyalty of anyone who wasn't directly related to him was gonna count is just, you know, see what he's done to his advisors. The, the bodies scattered around uh, Capitol Hill that he's left um, from, I mean, John Bolton, the things that are him, <laughs> my God, I'm still trying to get over how those two aren't still best friends. Um, you know, they seem to have everything in common except bombing Iran, apparently. Um, but, um, but he's got no loyalty to people. And Theresa May running to him, first foreign leader to meet him on his election, holding his hand in, in the, the Rose Garden, you know, a woman, prime minister who's strong, who doesn't have to do this. You know, Theresa May is better than that. I, I have respect for Theresa May. I don't have respect for her uh, policies in, in uh, the home office she was doing, but you know she did want what was best for the country. I don't uh, um, reject her. Um, uh, you know, I, I do think she was um, had had a, a good view of, of patriotism. Um, just went about it all the wrong ways. Um, and one of the big mistakes, thinking that that was going to get her anywhere with Trump, and it counted for nothing. And all he did immediately <laughs> was big up Boris Johnson, replacing her. Right around when he was getting ready to, 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 you know, when he kind of cut loose. And so so it was just a, a remarkable backstabbing, um, uh, so on and so forth. So these folks that think, oh, Trump's our boy, um, you know, he's going to do all these things. It's going to be helpful, get this great trade deal. I don't know what they are smoking um, <laughs> to come to those conclusions. I just think they need to put it out um, and, and put it, you know, and, and throw it away. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been uh, great speaking to you, Tom. And I've got one final question for uh -oh. you. If you, if you could uh, play any character in any historical TV series, Ooh. who would you play? Oh, goodness me. <laughs> That's, um, that is a, a good one. So historical television series. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my, this, this still then gave you a kind of a terrific snapshot into uh, my personal psychology um, <laughs> and, and, and others will ruminate for the rest of my career about what this shows about me. This is a great question. Um, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, growing up, I suppose I would embarrass myself a lot um, that I, I used to uh, love this show, Good Times about a black family um, in the United States um, uh, trying to get by in, in difficult um, circumstances. Mm. Um, the son of the guy who played the dad um, uh, used to um, uh, work uh, at my, my, my father's shop when I was growing up, got to know him, uh, the family a bit, um, or bits about them, which was, which was great. So I liked that show and also was a big fan of the Jeffersons um, uh, uh, growing up. Um, uh, another family with uh, mixed friends and others on the on the east side in New York, and, and a, my favorite cartoon was um, Fat Albert. Um, so I watched all these shows of not a lot of people look like me in them, um, but uh, I just thought they were funny and, and great. I don't know if um, you know my you know, and I also watched the A Team. Um, you know, uh, would I say I'm Hannibal versus? Um, I'm not. Um, B.A. Baracus. Um, um, I'm definitely not Murdoch. Um, certainly not Face. Um, so I, wouldn't, I don't know who on the A-team I am. Um, um, I mean, this, this I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I was to go to um, Scooby-Doo, um, you know, maybe 
maybe maybe the 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 chap whose name i forget um who wore the bandana that um you know looked to me at the time like something that eddie van halen was wearing a front guitar for van halen maybe that was you know maybe that was my my, why i like the guy um (laughs) and maybe because i like eddie van halen and still do um and um Maybe that figure in, in, in Scooby-Doo, I, you know, yeah, just figuring, you know, trying to kind of have a cool head in, in, in difficult situations and, um, and trying to kind of solve puzzles and riddles. I, I, I like doing that. Well, I think that's a, a great choice. And like you say, I'm sure our, <laughs> our listeners will puzzle over all of that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sorry it took me so long to get to um, Scooby-Doo, but, uh, but there you are. No, he's we fine. said childhood, and that, that was some of the 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 the, the kind of television I, I unfortunately saw um, at that time. Uh, you know, switching between Scooby Doo and Fat Albert. Well, thank you uh, once again for coming on the podcast, Tom. A great joy. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or YouTube, you can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us, thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. <laughs>